Good morning, listeners, and I hope today finds you well. My name is Wilson McCoy with the College Hills Church of Christ here in Lebanon, Tennessee, and I want to say a big thank you for listening in to our weekly radio broadcast. Please know this broadcast is one of several options that our church currently offers as ways for you to stay connected, and if you want to find out about other things that our church is offering right now, feel free to go to collegehills.org where you can find out more about our on-campus and online gatherings, as well as finding past sermon from pulpit and radio sermons as well. You can check those out at collegehills.org. As you may or may not know, we are currently moving through a summer series that we are calling A Summer of Sin, Seven Ways to Ruin and Redeem Your Life. And what we're doing through the course of this summer series is we're looking at the seven deadly sins as a template for how we talk about this topic of sin. Sin is this big theme that runs through Scripture, and there's a lot of different images we could use or ways to talk about it in different lists that we have in different passages. But the seven deadly sins grow out of the history of the church, church tradition, and they give for us, I think, a helpful template, one way for us to think about and reflect on the sin that can so easily entice us and entangle us on the deepest places and in the deepest places of our heart. And so over the last several weeks, we've been looking at different sins that can tangle our hearts in ways that can lead us down paths that are unhelpful and unfaithful. But each week, we're also trying to look at the converse of the ruinous path and also talk about the redemptive path. If there is this path that we should not walk down, what is the opposite of a better way forward for the life that we might live, a more redemptive path instead of a ruinous path. And so today we're going to be looking at the topic and the sin of greed as the next one in our series. And the passage that we're going to be looking at today is going to be coming from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. Luke 12, 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no store barn or food room. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why 
do you worry about the rest? Consider the wildflowers and how they grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. I want to begin our lesson today in a bit of an opposite order. And by that I mean each week we've been looking at these different sins that we are describing as things that ruin our life, and then we're considering what might redeem our life. But today I want to do those backwards. I want to consider the prescription before I consider the problem. I want us to consider the redemptive path and then consider the ruinous path. And by that I mean, I want us to consider the redemptive path of generosity before we discuss and reflect on the ruinous path of greed. Because I think by reflecting on the better path that God gives to us, this path of generosity, and starting there, beginning with generosity instead of beginning with greed, will help us to better think about and reflect on why greed impacts our life. But even that decision to start this conversation by focusing on the topic of generosity is a tricky place to start. Because when we think about a word like generosity, each of us as individuals probably have different starting places where our mind and our hearts wander when we hear this word. For some of us, like myself, we hear the word generosity and we may be taken back to some childhood memories. So for example, in my life, one of the early generosity lessons that was impressed upon me was every Saturday night as we were getting ready to go to bed, and in preparation for church the next morning. I remember watching my parents go through a weekly ritual of writing out a check to our church. And while it seemed mundane and normal at the time, I was surprised that many years later, it was something that I continued to remember whenever people talked about being generous. This childhood memory is one of my very first starting places when I think about this word, generous or generosity. For some of us, your starting point may not be a memory, but maybe something from Scripture, a verse that you remember. Maybe a favorite verse like, God loves a cheerful giver. Or maybe a favorite proverb, those who trust in riches will wither, but the righteous will flourish like green leaves. Or you might begin with the favorite piece of advice that's not in Scripture, but maybe we kind of wish it was. God helps those who help themselves. Sometimes these verses and pieces of advice are good, but sometimes they're not the best place to start a conversation about generosity. For some of us, whether we realize it or not, a conversation about generosity 
be it about time or talents or treasure, maybe starts from a place of fear or anxiety, even though we don't admit that initially. But we have these questions that begin to bubble up in our minds and our hearts when we hear a word like generosity. Questions like, am I giving enough? Am I overextended or should I be doing more for others? Am I living my life to its fullest potential? Do I really have enough? What if we run out? What if it crashes again? What if? What if? What if? And because we can sometimes have this undercurrent of fear running below the surface, that ripples into how we talk about and practice generosity, whether we realize it or not. We might end up doing things like closing ourselves off to people in need. We might try to figure out minimum requirements of God so that we can get rid of the guilt that we might feel if we don't feel like we're giving enough. We might turn inward on our conversations or our considerations about our time or talents or treasure because we feel like those are limited, and so we want to hold them as close as possible. And that's the thing about starting a conversation about generosity from that place of fear or anxiety, which is often what can happen. Because when we talk about fear, fear always turns us inward. Fear can make us more self-focused, more self-preserving in our actions, attitudes, and even our wallets. Fear can cause us to not trust anyone but ourselves. Fear can cause us to not trust anything but our hard work. Fear can quietly kill generosity and replace it with greed. That's the thing that I don't think we often consider when we think about a topic like greed. That part of the reason that greed can take root in our hearts is because of fear at work in our hearts. Often when we start talking about generosity, we find ourselves afraid, and before we know it, that fear turns us in to greedy people. When talking about generosity, we can often begin with fear, and that fear will lead us to greed. That's why I picked our text in Luke 12 for today. Because in our text in Luke 12, Jesus gives us a very different starting place for considering generosity. Jesus points his disciples, and he points us to a particular image of God as the start of generosity. Our text this morning comes in the flow of Jesus having a conversation that starts about money, but that Jesus expands to be about so much more. Just a few verses before, a man comes to Jesus and has a simple financial dispute he wants him to settle. But Jesus refuses to give a simple answer, and he expands the conversation to serve as a warning against all kinds of greed. And as soon as we think that settles it, Jesus expands the conversation even further by not just talking about greed, but talking about worry, because those two are always connected. 
And just about the time we think that we can leave with some good advice on worry, Jesus expands the conversation further to talk about God's kingdom as our top priority as disciples. But even bigger in our verse today that comes in the midst of this flowing conversation of Jesus that stands as this bold promise framing all of what comes before and driving all of what Jesus says after. He says these words, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So what starts as a question about money for Jesus becomes a much bigger issue about the nature of God. This guy comes to him, Jesus, wanting to start a conversation on one level, but Jesus wants to start the conversation at another level, at the level of God and God's kingdom. And the scandalously beautiful promise of Jesus is this. God is a generous God. God desires and finds delight in giving each and every one of us God's kingdom. God wants to give us right relationships. God aches for a world where there is love of God and love of neighbor. God takes pleasure when we experience justice and harmony and peace and reconciliation. God is generous in love and grace and mercy. It is God's good pleasure to give us God's kingdom. This is a present tense promise. This is a reality now experience. God wants to give us God's kingdom in the here and now. And when we zoom out, we can see this picture of God throughout Scripture. A God who generously creates the world where God can reign and rule and right relationships. A God who generously gives second chances to humanity even when they stray from his purposes. A God who generously gives manna in the wilderness to the people of God as they wander. A God who is generous enough to send prophets to call the people back to love God and love neighbor. And this is the God that we most fully see in Jesus A Jesus who is generous, generous enough to show us what the kingdom looks like in flesh and blood, generous in his compassion, time, and resources, generous towards the poor, broken, hurting, and wounded, generous with his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends, generous with his enemies, washing the feet of even those who betray him, generous to the entire world, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is a generous Jesus who points us to a generous God, and that, that character and nature of God should ultimately be our starting point for any conversation about generosity. Not necessarily a childhood memory, not necessarily a favorite proverb, not necessarily our fear or anxiety, but ultimately the nature of God is where Jesus wants us to start when talking about the nature of generosity. Now, I should say that if this does 
become our starting point, the nature and character of God. And considering the nature and character of God as primarily a God of generosity, then I'm guessing that for some of us that might challenge some of our preconceived notions about who God is and how God relates to us in the world. James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, tells the story of being a junior in college uh, and hearing about a preacher at another campus across town. And this preacher would show up every day on campus about 10.50 in the morning, stand on a bench, and begin with a passionate sermon of fire and brimstone each day. He began to hear about this preacher, and so one day he went across campus to check out the spectacle, and there, exactly at 10.50 a.m., that preacher jumped on a bench and began screaming and yelling about the lake of fire and how all the students were going to go there if they did not change their ways immediately. And this particular preacher took it upon themselves to name some of the things that they were doing that would lead them to this said lake of fire. Brian Smith noted that the students there ended up mocking and laughing at this lady on a daily basis. But he was a Christian on a non-Christian campus, and so he felt torn not just by what he saw in his fellow students, but also what he heard in this preacher. Because on the one hand, yeah, he agreed with many of the things they were preaching against. He agreed that they were wrong. But on the other hand, he felt conflicted because he knew this preacher was leaving out in their presentation certain central traits that were at the core of who God was. Characteristics like love and grace and compassion were these bigger aspects, bigger themes in the story of Scripture about God that James Bryan Smith was not hearing in this preacher's daily sermon. He said that one of his biggest problems with the sermon and the one who was delivering that sermon was that they were presenting an incomplete narrative about God. In other words, they weren't telling the full story about the nature of God. And that's what can often happen when we think about God and generosity. We talk about generosity in ways that don't present the full story of God. We may just present a story of a God who's angry at us, and so if we believe that's primarily who God is, then the gifts that we give and the generosity that we share can often simply just be motivated as a way to kind of quench and appease God's anger. So we can end up very subtly creating a new way of earning salvation and living in fear like we can never do enough or never give enough. This is why, on a side note, for so many of us, it's hard to be joyful in our giving because we give out a sense of terror and fear that we're not doing enough or giving enough for God. And so the experience of joy is an experience that's never connected to our giving. 
generosity, that it's primarily rooted in fear and guilt, is not the full story of the God that we meet in Jesus. Sometimes we don't tell a full story of who God is when we talk about generosity, because sometimes we primarily present God as some transactional being. In other words, every gift we give strictly becomes a way for us to get something. We think, well, if we give this, then God will give me something in return. It's almost like we subtly begin to think that if we give, then we are owed something in return. We may not say it explicitly, but sometimes that can be below the surface where we give in ways that we expect some kind of transactional response from God. I do X, Y, and Z so I can get X, Y, and Z. But as one author has pointed out to me before, when we turn God into a transactional being, we're no longer practicing Christianity, but voodoo. Because generosity that's primarily rooted in selfishness and greed and obligation is not the narrative or story of the God that we meet in Jesus. And then for some of us, we end up not presenting a full story of God when we talk about generosity. Because often we can turn it into a story about God being apathetic or passive. In other words, we're not really sure if Anything that we give or how we give has anything to do with God's kingdom. We can end up using our time, energy, and resources, in other words, to build our kingdom and not the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. But generosity that's primarily rooted in a passive picture of God is not the story of the God that we meet in Jesus. The God that we meet in Jesus is a different kind of story and a different kind of God. The God of Jesus is one we, we don't need to be afraid of because this is a God who freely gives us his kingdom. This is God's desire. This is God's delight. And when we can begin to allow that picture of God to sink deep into our hearts, then we won't be as easily tempted to fall victim to the sin of greed. Because greed is always about self, and that greed is always rooted in fear. It's always rooted in a scarcity mentality, and it's ultimately rooted in a scarcity view of God. But if we can begin to embrace a generous view of God, a God who is abundant and willing and ready and desiring to give, It changes the shape of our hearts. It removes the fear and anxiety that can so easily motivate our behavior, and it can open us up to be men and women who are generous in the world. To me, that is the tipping point in whether we're going to be greedy people or generous people. That if we're going to go down the path of greed, we're ultimately going to be led there by fear, and scarcity in the sense that there is not ever enough. But if we want to go down the path of generosity, then that is guided by 
And Jesus guides us down that path by presenting to us a God who will take care of our needs, a God who will provide for us his kingdom and doesn't just willingly do this, but he wants to do this. He doesn't just feel obligated to do this, but it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And if we can let that sink into our hearts, then we will not be as easily tempted down the path of greed. If we can embrace this generous view of God, then we can more easily become a generous people. We can be liberated to be God's generous people in the world. And on one level, this liberation happens in the concrete everyday existence of life. This is why I think that right after Jesus makes this bold promise about God, God wants to give you the kingdom, he immediately follows up with an invitation to do what? Sell possessions and give to the poor. A tangible act of faith. Because how we handle possessions is one of the most faith-revealing aspects of our life. And so when we believe in a generous kind of God, then we can do things like give away what we have to those who have little or none. We can spend extra time with the student or child who we know doesn't get much love at home. We can sit somewhere else at lunch with the person or people that others have rejected. We can go to places in our town or places in the world that others may have written off. We can give up time that we thought was so important to listen to the person who doesn't have as much as we do. We can move out into the world looking for ways to give and be generous in those everyday concrete avenues of life. But on another level, the liberation frees our imaginations to dream of the world that God's desire. This is why I think that right after this concrete instruction about selling possessions and giving to the poor, Jesus says things that are a bit harder to pin down, that are more imaginative in nature. Because what he says is that we're invited to imagine a kind of life for ourselves and others that has eternal significance, a kind of life that can't be destroyed by rust or moths, age or decay. We're invited to imagine a kind of life where the things we treasure are things of God's kingdom breaking out in the world. We're invited to imagine a kind of life where God's kingdom is our top priority and we seek out that kingdom above everything else. We're free to imagine a different kind of world and to live into that world more and more. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. When we can embrace that truth, we can begin to walk further down the path of generosity and further away from the path of greed. So many voices want to call us down that path of greed, of self-preservation, of focusing on me, myself, and I. And what that does is it can narrow our vision, not just for our own lives, but for the lives of others. And it can narrow our vision so much that it can cut us off from the life of God and the life of others. But to believe in this God who is generous with us, who wants to give us the kingdom, 
it opens us up to God and it opens us up to others and it sparks our imagination about where we might be generous people. I think one of the best ways for us to embrace this path of generosity and move away from the path of greed is simply to try it. That the way that we learn the truth of generosity and the truth of a generous God is to live into that truth. That there comes a point where we can't just theoretically say, well, God is a generous God, but we actually have to live into that truth to learn that God is that kind of generous God. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to give some ideas, some experiments, some possibilities of how you might try to be generous this week and see how God might change you through them, change us through them, change our view of God by experimenting with them. So in no particular order, consider selling something that you own and giving some of that money to the poor. Maybe you can consider how you might increase your giving in some way over the next week or month or year. Maybe you could choose to not take any work home with you for a week and give that time to your family in a more intentional way. Maybe you can pay for a stranger's meal this week without them finding out who did it. Maybe writing a note to someone that's saturated in generosity. Maybe listening more than you speak in your conversations this week. May God give us the hearts and imaginations and lives to reflect his generosity to the world this week. Amen.